Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books and Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figger, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Catherine Hawley. Catherine is professor of philosophy at the University of St. Andrews. Her research focuses on metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And in fact, she often works at the intersection of these fields. Now, her new book is titled How to Be Trustworthy, and it's newly published with Oxford University Press. In our day-to-day lives, a lot hangs on trust and therefore on whether those around us are trustworthy. But there are several philosophical issues surrounding both trust and trustworthiness. For one example, just consider whether trusting someone differs from merely relying on them. We can ask a corresponding question about whether being trustworthy differs from being reliable. Now, assuming that there is a difference between trust and reliable reliability and being trustworthy and being reliable, in what does that difference consist? What, when, what renders somebody worthy of our trust? And is trustworthiness always something that's under our control? Now, in the book, How to Be Trustworthy, Catherine Hawley explores many of these central questions, the questions one might ask when one's thinking through these issues. This is a slim volume, but it's packed with careful and engaged argumentation. I recommend the book highly. So there's a lot to talk about, as there ordinarily is. And as we ordinarily do, let's begin with our guest. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Bob. And how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine, doing fine. Um, Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, Yeah, so like you said, I'm I'm a professor of philosophy here at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. But um, I'm not a Scot uh, by by birth. I was born and I grew up in Stoke-on-Trent, which is a a city in in the West Midlands of England. Um, And when I first encountered philosophy as an undergrad student, that was not about issues to do with trust or trustworthiness. It was rather in connection with physics, which is what I was mainly studying at the time. So I got interested in questions about um, time, space, uh, persistence through time, what it is for two objects to be the same as each other or, or different. These are kind of metaphysical questions and philosophy of science questions that um, I found I was kind of drawn to from my physics studies, drawn into philosophy, and then I kind of never looked back. Um, and in, in recent years, I've uh, my, my research and my teaching as well here at the university have moved more away from those kind of metaphysical questions um, and more to thinking about questions to do with uh, human relationships, uh, social relationships, um, how knowledge works in, in, in human relationships and the kind of obligations and interactions we have with each other. And for me, that has led me very naturally thinking about trust and distrust and trustworthiness, because every time we interact with one another, not every time, but many times when we're interacting with one another, these things come come to, to light. Um, and I was thinking back in, in thinking about what I wanted to say today, I was thinking, well, why why did I make that change in my interests at that time? And I think, uh, I think there were a couple of reasons. One is that... Um, uh, I became a parent, so my kids are teenagers now, but um, uh, uh, this is some time ago. And, of course, you know, when you have kids, then you, there's a special kind of relationship you have with your kids that involves trust and distrust. Um, but also, more generally, it puts you into interesting relationships with a much wider group of people than you might do under other circumstances. So other parents or teachers, kind of healthcare professionals, neighbours and so on. And I got interested in the kind of relationships you have through your children or through parenthood. Um, and I also at the same time at work, I was taking on more management responsibilities. So I was trying to manage my colleagues. It's a bit like herding cats, famously managing philosophers, um, but trying to deal with um, interpersonal difficulties and, and interpersonal good things as well. Um, and I'm kind of interested in more generally in all those sorts of relationships where we're not thinking about 
close friendships or kind of intimate family relationships necessarily, but also we're not thinking about relationships with just strangers that we happen to see on the street. We're thinking about people we work with or we live near um, or we have to interact with repeatedly. Um, and I think there are particularly interesting issues about trust and distrust and trustworthiness, which arise in these kind of slightly semi-detached, but nevertheless very important kinds of relationships. So that's kind of what led me in the end to, to ending up writing a, a whole book about trust and trustworthiness. Uh, that's fabulous. And, you know, um, I've been department chair for almost a decade now. Um, uh-huh. so I, <laughs> I, I know just what you're talking about. Um, so I, would just, let me just ask a very quick question, which, you know, as, you're, as you were just explaining how you got into this project sort of occurred to me, um, and it, it's not explicit in the book, but now that I um, uh, have heard you mention it, um, it, does, um, it, it, it does seem to um, animate at least part of the analysis, the idea that trust and trustworthiness and and distrust, these are phenomena that more naturally attach to these kinds of sort of middle ground human interactions and relationships. They're not intimate, <laughs> uh, exactly, but right. They're not just, you know, the, 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 the driver, the, the other guy driving a car on the road, right. That there is this sort of middle ground of, or this middle world of human interactions where, um, it's not that trust is uniquely um, uh, operative uh, uh, in those spaces, but that it has a particularly um, important character, or maybe it's uh, particularly important in those contexts. Would you say that that's right? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think trust, of course, we trust is also very important in, in our most intimate relationships and, and kind of betrayals of trust can be in some ways the most damaging when when it is someone who's very close to us or we thought we were very close to betrayal from people um, within the family or close friends can be particularly damaging. So I think it's not that trust is kind of the most important in these in-between situations, but it does have a distinctive kind of character, I think, in these relationships, um, which are neither the, the most intimate nor the kind of least intimate. Um, and I think it's, they've quite often been overlooked, or at least they've not been the centre of attention when, when philosophers have been thinking about trust. Um, um, because, you know, it's important to think about the intimate relationships. And there's a lot to be said for thinking about these, yeah, as you say, kind of how we coordinate with other drivers or how we, if we need to stop someone and ask for directions on the street, that's, that's a, there was kind of some good questions there about how, you know, how does trust work in those contexts. But this kind of middle ground stuff, I think, is, is it's an important part of our lives and it's, it's easy to overlook it when we're, we're thinking philosophically about trust. Um, and it's well, it's it's interesting for all sorts of reasons. But one way I think of trying to capture what what's going on in these kind of middle ground relationships is that we are often entitled to expect things of each other in those kind of situations, or to impose sorts of certain sorts of expectations and demands on one another. But we shouldn't impose too much, right? You shouldn't expect of your colleagues what you expect of your close friends um, and vice versa. Um, and you shouldn't only expect what you, um, of your colleagues what you, what you can expect of someone, a random stranger on the street. And so there's often a kind of question about, well, how much, how much is reasonable there and how much is too much? You know, what, um, when, when does our trust in those kind of contexts end up being burdensome for other people or when are we being perfectly reasonable to expect certain things of each other? Um, and if you've been a chair for a decade, then you'll know that often we, we have disagreements about these things, right? There's no, there aren't straightforward answers here. Different people can come into these relationships with different sorts of ideas about what can reasonably be expected of one another. And sometimes that's about just kind of personality differences. Um, but sometimes it's also a kind of, I think, a kind of moral disagreement about what's, you know, what, what's ethically appropriate and what isn't. Right. Fabulous. So um, that's... I mean, it, what you just said helps to uh, helps me anyway to sort of put a lot of um, a, a lot of the analysis of the book into a into a context that uh, I, I'm finding very helpful. So, um, but let's 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 start now um, uh, in, in talking about um, uh, the, the argument of the book and the trajectory of the book itself, um, and maybe the place to start is kind of with these the sort of fundamental distinctions that begin the book. Um, particularly the difference between um, trust and reliance uh, and distrust and non-reliance. Um, so can you um, sort of spell out those, those sort of initial sort of fundamental distinctions? 
Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, so one thing is I find interesting about trust is that it's actually studied by a, lot, a whole lot of different academic disciplines, so social sciences and other humanities disciplines, um, psychologists and so on, as, as well as philosophers. And those different disciplines come in with kind of different ideas about what the fundamental questions are or what we're trying to explain and analyse. But certainly within philosophy, as you say, it's very a very standard starting point, and it's my starting point as well, is this distinction between trusting someone and merely relying upon them. And this goes back to, um, at least in this this kind of formulation of it goes back to Annette Beyer, who was a New Zealand-born philosopher, um, and her, she did some really important early work on trust in the analytic traditional philosophy in the in the 80s and 90s. And Bayer noticed that, well, look, you know, we spend our whole time relying on the kind of inanimate objects around us, right? So you rely on your car to get you to work. You know, you rely on the chair that you're sitting on now not to kind of fold underneath you. You rely on your computer to do all sorts of complicated things that we perhaps don't understand. Um, but we, and we might um, think about, we might use the word trust for trusting your car, but we don't, we, we don't really says buyer um think of that as the same kind of relationship as we have with another person when we trust them especially not when we're thinking about intimate relationships and trust um and buyer said well look one, one way of understanding this difference between trusting someone and merely relying on an inanimate object or perhaps a person thought of in that way is to think about what happens when things go wrong right so if you trust someone um and they let you down that can be incredibly upsetting and it often makes us angry and resentful and that's the kind of context in which we might talk about betrayal if it's a high stakes thing or at least if we're feeling melodramatic that day. Um, we feel that the other person ought to have proven trustworthy, that you know, they, they, they've wronged us in some way. There's all these kind of value judgments that are built into our reactions or our reactive attitudes, as, as we often say in philosophy, um, which uh, come to the fore when we trust a person and but yet our trust is disappointed. We, you know, we got this kind of resentful response. And Bayer said, well, look, that's not the appropriate response when we're merely relying. So if you rely on your car to start in the morning and it doesn't, well, sure, that can be frustrating and annoying and disappointing. And now you've got to make other plans. Um, and that's, you know, your morning is messed up. But, says Bayer, it's not appropriate, if we think clearly about it, if we can stay calm, it's not the right response there is not to get angry with your car, not to feel resentful, not to feel that it's wronged you and it should be apologising to you. Right? Sometimes I think we do do that, but we, if we think about it, we know that that's not really the sensible response here. <laughs> so Bayer says, well, look, that's, why is that? Why are there different responses appropriate here when things go wrong? And she says, well, when we merely rely and we're just relying on the car, um, when things go wrong, there's a certain kind of reaction which is appropriate, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a reaction that um, involves quite as much sort of normative judgment, as much kind of value judgment, as kind of resentment and so on. Whereas when you are, have a trusting relationship with someone and they let you down, then there's, there's, there's something more to our reactions there. So we might think, well, look, this is, is this just the difference between a car and a person, right, between an inanimate object and a, another human being? Um, but Bayer again points out, well, no, sometimes we have this just kind of relying relationship on other people. And there's this very famous example that keeps coming back in the literature, which is, um, I don't even know this is true, but supposedly the philosopher Immanuel Kant went for a walk at the exact same time every morning. So this is the story anyway. And then the further aspect of the story is that the people of Königsberg, where he lived, would set their clocks by him, kind of literally, right? So there's Kant, so it must be 11 o'clock. Um, and Bayer said, well, look, I suppose that's true. Um, and suppose one day Kant doesn't go for a walk. He just changes his mind or he's not feeling well that day or it's just raining too much. Um, and that messes up the people of Königsberg. Like they, all their watches are kind of set wrong now or they forget to have their lunch or whatever it might be. Um, Bayer says, well, look, it's not appropriate for those people to now resent Kant or for him to have to apologise or for them to get angry with him. Right? That's what he, you know, he wasn't going for a walk in order to help people set their clocks on time. He was just going for a walk. And as it happened, people started to rely on him to set their watches. So Bayer says, we can have that kind of relying relationship um, to other people, as in that case, that doesn't have to amount to trust either. And really that distinction between trust and reliance, since Bayer has set the agenda for a lot of philosophical work on trust because we've got the idea that there are two different attitudes there there's merely relying and then there's trusting and then the kind of philosophical challenge is to say well okay what's the difference can we say more about what that difference is and what it amounts to 
And in my view, um, it's also, I think that's a good question to ask, um, and I try and answer it in my own way, but I think it's also we should think about a similar question, an analogous question about distrust. Right. Um, and this isn't such a common one to think about in, in philosophical contexts. Um, uh, so I think it's also useful to notice that we can not rely on things or we can fail to rely on things or decide not to rely on things. And that's not always the same as actively distrusting a person. All right. So again, once you, if your car keeps not starting on time in the morning, um, uh, then you may stop relying on it, right? You get a, get a ride with one of your neighbors or you have to get a new car or you take it into the garage to get fixed. Um, but again, that doesn't seem to be the same thing as, as the attitude of distrust, which you might have in a human being, a person, a colleague or a friend who keeps repeatedly letting you down. Um, so distrust seems to have more of a kind of, again, a sort of moral, evaluative, and normative weight to it, something over and above merely not relying on people. Um, and again, I think we can see that by thinking about what happens when we make a mistake with distrust. So if you don't rely on something or someone, and then you find out, oh, actually, it turns out it was reliable. I could have relied. Well, great. Now you can rely on the future. There's nothing to feel bad about there. Whereas if you distrust somebody and it turns out that was a mistake, this person really was trustworthy and you misjudge them, it seems to me that's a situation in which, well, you know, perhaps you should be apologising or at least kind of reviewing how you got to make that mistake or trying to make up for that mistake for the person. When we distrust someone, there's a kind of, there's a kind of insult there or a kind of, um, again, a sort of negative value judgment um, over and above the, the, the decision not to rely on someone. So that's one thing that kind of sets the agenda for my book is I say, yes, we need to understand the difference between trust and mere reliance. Um, but while we're doing that, let's make sure we can also understand the difference between distrust and all the kind of rich stuff that's built into that attitude and merely just not relying on someone or something. That's a kind of more a more kind of low-key attitude. Right. Fabulous. Um, so uh, the, the view that you wind up proposing then, um, which... Um, you know, makes a uh, good sense of a lot of the examples that you just uh, were using um, is that uh, when we trust another person, we're relying on them. And then also there's some other condition, right? So trust is a kind of reliance plus some additional condition. And on your view, um, uh, trusting someone involves relying on them plus uh, adopting the belief that the person that you trust has the relevant commitment and is motivated by it in the right way, or there's, there's you know, something to, to be spelled out about, about the commitment. Um, so can you, can you explain your commitment view, um, uh, about, uh, what it is to trust, uh, and maybe sort of contrast that with, um, uh, a view that, um, I suspect, uh, some listeners, uh, will be familiar with, which is uh, a view according to which um, trusting somebody is relying on them, you know, plus um, taking them to be motivated in, in the right or to have the right motive or to 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 be motivated in the in a particular way. Uh, can you spell out what's distinctive, uh, both what the commitment view is and what's distinctive about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess the first thing is to try and. Um, uh, so what I mean by commitment, right? So I think I think often we use the word commitment in two different ways, and it's it's important to me that I, that people focus their mind on on the on the on the sense of commitment that, that I, I have in mind. So sometimes we talk about people being committed to a cause or a project, right? So you might admire someone's commitment to training for a marathon or to you know um, campaigning against climate change or something like that. And in that sense of commitment, what we're thinking of is someone that they're really determined to do something. They've got a kind of determined kind of intention. There's a psychological kind of steadiness, perhaps, in their, in their attitude to that thing. And that's not the sense of commitment I'm after. Right? So, so think about that and then set it to one side. Um, instead, when I talk about commitment, I mean something like um, an undertaking or you kind of generate an obligation to do something um, for yourself. Um, so the, the, the kind of classic case for this is when you've promised to do something. So if I promised, as I did, right, I promised to speak to you today for your podcast. Um, um, now, if I was a bad person, I might have made that promise just because I felt like messing you around and I didn't intend to do it and there was no way I was going to come and you know, speak to you on your podcast. Well, I've still, I still should do it. Right? I promised to do it. Um, I've got a commitment in the sense that I'm interested in. I've undertaken to do it. I've made myself obliged to do it now. And that's the case, even though I don't have that kind of psychological commitment. I'm, you know, I'm just a bad person and I don't, I don't intend to live up to that commitment. 
So when I talk about commitment, I'm talking about that kind of normative thing about something which um, is a kind of an undertaking or a promise or a, um, um, some, something of that type. Okay, so why do I think that's important for trust and distrust? Well, um, I think that, yeah, as you say, if we think about Kant, for example, going for his walk every morning at the same time, well, he did that. Um, let's suppose, um, but uh, he didn't. He hadn't kind of said to the people of Königsberg that that's what he was going to do. Um, and perhaps if they, if they asked him whether that was what he was going to do, he might say something like, "Well, yeah, but you know, I might change my mind, or don't rely upon me, or something like that." He's not kind of undertaking or making himself obliged to to do this regular walk. And I think something like that is the reason why. Um, the people of Königsberg, it was okay for them to rely upon him because he was such a creature of habit, um, apparently, but it wasn't appropriate for them to trust him and then to kind of complain afterwards if he didn't um, if he didn't go for the walk at the regular time. It's because he hadn't got an undertaking or commitment to doing that that it's not appropriate for them to resent him or to complain when things go wrong. Um, likewise, I think when we think about what distrust is, above and beyond just merely not relying on someone, um, uh, I think the reason distrust involves that kind of negative value judgment about the other person is that we're thinking of them as having undertaken to do something. They've under, they've kind of incurred an obligation in a certain sort of way. They've made a promise perhaps to do something. But now we don't even think that we can rely upon them to do that. Right? So we're not relying upon them, but it's something that they've undertaken to do. And that's what makes it appropriate to distrust them. That's what makes it, it's not just merely relying, it's merely relying, it's relying, it's, sorry, it's not just failure to rely upon them, it's failure to rely upon them and thinking badly of them because this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of situation in which we ought to be able to rely upon them. Right. So I find it helpful to think about, yeah, this trust and distrust attitudes as involving um, thinking that the other person, that what we're dealing with is a situation in which the other person has undertaken to do something, they've committed to doing something, and now we're trying to work out whether we think they really will do it or won't do it. Um, as you say, I mean, and we'll talk later maybe about why why I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it, but as you say, it's useful, I think, to distinguish this from a, a different but kind of common way in which philosophers have thought about what trust involves. Um, and And that's to do with attributing a certain kind of motive to the, the trusted person. So we might think, well, look, when I trust someone, yeah, I rely upon them to do this thing. Um, but it's not just I think they're going to do the thing. Perhaps I think what, what makes this trust now is that I think they're going to do this thing because they know that I'm relying upon them or because they know that I'm trusting them. Or perhaps they know that this is something that I need or that I desire or perhaps that they know that I'm vulnerable to them. There's a kind of cluster of ideas here which says that when we trust someone else to do something, we expect them to do the thing in a way which is motivated by kind of considerations about us, right? They realise something about the relationship, they realise about they realise that we're relying upon them, and that's what motivates them to, to do the thing that we're, that we're trusting them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think often we have that attitude to other people, right? I mean, um, and it's nice when you can rely on people in that way, right? Again, I think perhaps especially in intimate relationships with close friends or with family, it's, you know, you want to think that, you know, your friends and family are thinking of you and that sometimes they do things because they know that that's what you would like or that they know that you're relying upon them. So I, I don't want to downgrade the importance of that kind of relationship or that kind of attitude, but I do want to kind of resist saying that that's, that's really what trust amounts to. Um, and what I'm trying to say instead is that, um, uh, yeah, when, when we trust someone to do something, kind of what matters is that they live up to their commitment. It doesn't matter so much for the purposes of trust why they're doing what they do. And I think here this is a place where you can see an influence of the fact that I'm often thinking about these kind of intermediate relationships as we right. talked about earlier, like in the in the workplace or um, in the kind of broader community. Um, because really what you need in that kind of situation is for people to do what they said they would do and often we don't care that much about why they do it, right? I mean, you, 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 it's nice that people are motivated by thinking about us, but if they're motivated by duty or habit or because they want us to be able to ask, ask us for a favour later on or whatever, well, that can be pretty good, right? Often that's that's all we need in those kind of contexts. And that, those can be, in a way, the most kind of effective working relationships or kind of neighbourly relationships. So I wanted to hang on to that thought there, that um, often, in the, at least in these kind of situations, when we trust someone, um, what we want them to do is to live up to their commitments, and it doesn't particularly matter why. Um, I also, another reason I wanted to kind of go this route is that I think, again, this helps us think about distrust. Right. Um, because if we try and think about distrust in 
you know, mainly in terms of the other person's motives, we get a little bit lost, right? Because you might think, oh, well, when I distrust someone, what I think is, is that they're, they have bad motives or they're trying to undermine me or they're campaigning against me. And yeah, sometimes that happens, unfortunately. Right? <laughs> but that's not the only situation in which just distrust is appropriate. Right? Often when we distrust people, it's because we think exactly that they're not thinking about us. Maybe they don't care either way about us or right. they'll do the thing if it suits them and not if it doesn't suit them. They're not, they're not against us um, or that at least they don't have to be. Um, and again, I think, you know, distrusting someone doesn't have to be about making speculation about why they're doing or not doing what they're doing or not doing. Um, it's rather thinking, well, yeah, this person said that they would do this thing and now it doesn't look pretty, doesn't look like they're going to do it. Well, that's, that's the kind of situation in which distrust is appropriate. Right. Fabulous. Um, and yeah, that, the, again, just to, to come back to what you said at the very beginning about this sort of middle ground of, you know, that really, as you said, it helped me really to understand what was driving the departure from the motives. Right. Um, uh, so that was, again, just for me, having read the book, really, really helpful. So, um, so uh, trust involves relying on somebody to uh, uphold uh, their commitments. On your view, mm-hmm, that's right. Now, you examine then these um, two, uh, not wholly distinct, but you know, uh, um, uh, distinguishable um, uh, modes or two central ways in which we undertake commitments. Um, in that sense of commitment that you're uh, um, uh, interested in exploring, um, what you call promising and and telling, or uh, sometimes you narrow it slightly to asserting. Um, so let's uh, let's begin with promising. Um, central to your account is the idea of competence in promising, and one of the things I thought was um, really interesting about your account of promissory obligation and in promising um, was that your your account focused, uh, unlike a lot of other philosophical accounts, sort of. Um, not on the person to whom the promise is made, uh, but on the promisor, uh, which I thought was, again, in, another respect in which your analysis sort of, you know, takes a, a little turn or, 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 you know, a slightly different direction from other um, um, analyses that I'm familiar with and and shows that there's something uh, really interesting afoot. Um, so um, ultimately, you wind up arguing that uh, promising, uh, the taking on of a promise, that's one main way to be, you know, take up a commitment um, is governed by, um, in addition to the sort of familiar sincerity, you know, you got to be sincere and what you're promising has to also clear some threshold of permissibility. Uh, you said there's also a competence norm uh, that there's a, there's a, there's a norm that's violated uh, in promising when you, you make promises that you ought not to have made. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your account of, 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 of taking on the commitment uh, relevant to trust by way of making a promise. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, so, so I, well, yeah, in, in trying to explain what I meant by commitment, I, I was referring to promises, and I think kind of when we make these explicit promises, that's in a way the kind of paradigm or the most, the most explicit way in which we make ourselves appropriately the target of either trust or distrust, depending on whether people think we're going to keep these promises or breaking them. So trying to understand what's going on with promising is important to me. And as you say, I focus on the person who might be thinking about whether to offer a promise or not. Um, and one way of thinking about what I'm doing there is to say, well, what is it to do a good job of that, right? What, what is it to be a good promise maker? Um, and I think we're, we're used to the thought that, well, um, you know, often we think about our situation once we've made a promise and what should we do then? Well, you know, other things being equal, and if we possibly can, we should keep the promise, right? That, that seems clear. But often we're in this situation a step before that. So we, I'm wondering whether to, someone, perhaps someone wants me to promise to do something or perhaps I would like to promise to do something. And is, is that a good idea? Um, and, uh, yeah, as you say, a natural thought, well, one aspect of that is going to be, well, am I going to do this thing? Right? So if, do I intend to keep the promise? And that's, that seems a threshold I've got, to, I've got to clear. I shouldn't be promising to do stuff that I've got no intention of doing. Um, we call this false promises or insincere promises, and they're, they're, they're bad. Um, but what we don't always think about so much is whether um, that kind of enthusiastic intention is enough, right? So if you think about um, uh, situations in which you might be tempted to promise to do something, you might be very well-meaning, right? Um, uh, but uh, and, and really intend to keep this promise. You know, you, you're, you're, you're trying to be a good person. You're trying to be a good promise maker. Um, 
But there's something else that you should be thinking about. It's not just whether you intend to do the thing, but whether it's really feasible and realistic and practical for you to actually do this thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've all been in the situation when we've been asked to take on a kind of fun project or maybe an invitation to go somewhere and do something interesting. Um, And of course, you'd love to do that. That sounds great. And the other person wants you to do that. And, you know, you'd make them happy if you said yes. Um, But what we should be doing before we say yes is also thinking, look, Am I really competent to do this? Have I got the time? Have I got the resources? Um, what else have I already agreed to do that might get in the way of me doing this? Do I have the skills that are necessary for doing this? And so I talk, uh, I use the word competence for as a gen- it's called a general term, uh, kind of catch-all term really for the kind of things we should be thinking about there. Um, but the, the kind of things we should be thinking about are the sort of various factors, we're both internal to ourselves, but also about our environment and our situation which are going to help or hinder us in keeping the promise. Because as we know, I mean, we know in our own case, and we certainly know from our dealings with other people, good intentions are often not enough. Right? Someone might be very well-meaning, um, really intend to do this thing they say they're going to do for you, um, but if they thought more carefully about it, they might realise that that's actually, there's not such a great likelihood that they're going to be able to follow through. Um, and I said that we don't always think about this. I think sometimes we it's tempting to overlook this in everyday life. I think this doesn't get talked about enough in the philosophical debates about promises. There's much more of a kind of focus on um, not making false or insincere promises. Um, and I think that's partly because, you know, when you, when you picture that person who is kind of enthusiastically jumping into things and not worrying too much about about whether they're really going to be able to follow through. That's kind of sympathetic. Like we've all been there. We all do that to some extent. That's not an evil person, you might think. That's not like someone who deliberately makes dishonest or manipulative promises. So it's tempting to think, well, that's just, you know, that doesn't matter too much. But I think actually that kind of thing, when it goes wrong repeatedly and frequently, you know, when people are constantly biting off more than they can chew, as we say, or writing checks they can't cash, um, or uh, there's other kind of colloquialisms we might use here, uh, that can be really damaging to relationships, and that can, in fact, make someone untrustworthy. So a good promise maker is someone who is not casual about that. They, they, you know, they only make promises they're competent to keep. Right. Can I ask, um, it's, ask a, 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 maybe a complicating question? Um, uh, and as I was reading the account in the book, which I, I thought was really compelling, um, and even just as you were describing it now, I, I was wondering if there wasn't um, an ambiguity and if there is, whether it matters or not, that's, I guess, going to be the question. In thinking about somebody who incompetently promises because the thing that they promise to do, uh, like fix my car, is um, a thing for which they're not adequately competent. They're just not competent mecha- at, at the mechanics of yeah, they're not competent mechanics. <laughs> the, yeah, he's not yeah. a competent mechanic. So that's one way of incompetently promising. I sincerely promise to do this permissible thing for you, fix your car, but I'm an incompetent car mechanic. Um, is that different from what looks also like a failure of competence, which might have more to do with, um, well, I guess an easy kind of case of the, the sort that I'm thinking of is um, sort of a cratic promising, where I promise to do something sincerely, it's a permissible thing that I promise to do, like eat my broccoli. But I know that when the broccoli is put in front of me, I've got acrasia. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, there's a kind of, is there, maybe there's in some of these kinds of cases, kind of a a failure to adequately know oneself or, but is that a different kind of incompetence when I'm, I'm certainly capable of eating the broccoli, you know, I know how to chew it and swallow it and all the rest. So it's not a, the same kind of incompetence as in the mechanic case where I just don't know how to fix a car, but I promise that, that I will do uh, that for you. Um, it looks as if there's a, maybe a different kind of incompetence there where I'm promising to do sincerely promising to do a permissible thing that I know due to acrasia or, or some other kind of foible uh, internal to me, um, I should know better than to promise to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there are lots, I mean, what part of what that brings out, right, is that um, we need to check a lot of boxes, right, to be competent, right, because we need to have skills sometimes, um, but also we need to have um yeah, as you say, kind of sort of strength of will, maybe if it's something as challenging as eating broccoli, um, we might need a kind of external resources, we might need kind of social support from other people to do things. Um, and and I guess 
I, I would want to bring all of those things under a, a broad heading of competence. But, but one reason the, the differences between those might be interesting is they might affect our how severely we judge the other person, how much we blame them for making an incompetent promise, right? So part of that might be about what we can expect them to know, right? So, um, um, you know, we might think, well, someone shouldn't set themselves up as a professional car mechanic if they don't have the skill, you know, they ought to know whether, they're, whether they are capable of doing that or not. Whereas there might be other things where we can appreciate it's difficult to know whether you really have the right skills or not. So we might be a bit more forgiving of someone who mistakenly thinks they have the skills that they don't really have. Um, I think that the kind of weakness of will type cases, it's also, I mean, we find in our own cases and certainly with other people, there's often a question is like, can you really not do it? Or is it just that you decided not to? Or that, you know, that, that that's that's often not clear. Um, so when, so we've got these different norms on promising. So one is sincerity, you know, having the right intentions and the other is the kind of competence. But in reality, there's going to be quite a lot of crossover there, right? So whether you, whether you could or not. But again, I mean, when you see this with kids sometimes, right, if they, if they, they might take a big serving of broccoli, um, kind of thinking they're going to be able to make themselves eat it. Um, and, and then it turns out, you know, that they didn't. You might say, well, why did you take so much if you weren't going to be able to eat all that? Um, and, and again, we, we expect more of adults perhaps on the, on the self-knowledge front there than, than we do with kids. I wonder, you know, just again, sort of riffing now. I wonder if there isn't um, also some some kind of interesting cases where um, promising to do the kind of thing that you might be incompetent, not fully competent to do, due, due to acrasia or some other kind of uh, foible, um, might not have a kind of proleptic um, function. That um, you know, uh, I, I, I take it that people who um, you know take up new year's resolutions to you know work you know exercise more sometimes see that as a strategy like well i i know i'm weak-willed but if i if i promise you know or if i publicly assert declare that i'm going to get fit this year or gonna you know train for that marathon this year that could be a way of um again in that williams sense proleptically sort of creating the conditions under which i maximize the probability yeah <laughs> of yeah actually doing it right yeah that's right and um i mean part of what you're bringing out here is um uh, actually spelling out this kind of sincerity norm on promising is can actually get quite complicated right because i mean what one thing we might say in that kind of situation is it's fine to promise to do something that you don't yet intend to do as long <laughs> right. as you can see that well once i've made this promise that's good that's going to motivate me right that's good that's going to give me the intention um uh, in fact, I have uh, I have another paper. I'll put a little plug for that um, <laughs> about um, how we sometimes use this as a kind of strategy, especially kind of public, not necessarily promising to other people, but um, kind of making announcements and saying, you know, maybe I might write on um, on social media, I'm going to go to the gym every day this this this, this year is my New Year's resolution, something like that. And I think there's some interesting questions there. But I mean, often, I mean, that can be an effective strategy, and often there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also a kind of way of doing that which is. I think can be kind of manipulative of other people, right? So you're kind of using other people in a way to kind of get yourself to do something. Um, um, so I think that there are other sort of ethical qualms we might sometimes have in that context, but we might say, but still, that's that's not a bad promise, right? If, if that's if that's what it takes for you to to do this thing and you, that does motivate you, then maybe 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 that's okay. Fabulous. Um, great. Um, so why don't we now turn to the, you know, the sort of second paradigmatic, uh, it's related but distinct um, mode of taking on the relevant kind of commitment, um, which you call telling. Um, uh, you contend that telling involves, um, and this is, I, I found really interesting, um, telling involves a simultaneous um, uh, um, uh, stating something and promising, um, and um, the promise is um, the promise to be telling the truth or to be speaking truthfully. So the promise is simultaneously made, and then um, in the making of it, it's either kept or broken. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it's. I mean, perhaps I could just say as a kind of preface that it's um, it's important to me in in the project and the book that I. Um, can give an, an account of trust and distrust and trustworthiness and untrustworthiness that includes both the many situations in which we trust other people to do stuff, but also the many situations in which we trust other people as as providers of information or as informants. Um, 
so sometimes we talk about practical trust and contrast that with epistemic or intellectual trust. But I want to kind of bring those together, not to say, not to collapse them necessarily, but to say that, well, these are different ways in which we kind of have this heightened reliance on other people, either for action or for information. And I want to give a kind of unified account that deals with both of those. So often we're promising, we're promising to do something. Um, and so when I talk about telling or assertion, we're thinking about people providing the information or at least offering this information or seeming to do that. Um, and so I wanted to try and understand telling or assertion in terms of a kind of promise-like commitment so that all of this stuff would fit together nicely into a big, into a big working machine. So that's my kind of motivation there. Um, and what I do, and I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not the first philosopher to have thought that telling, um, telling other people stuff involves making some kind of commitment or undertaking or whatever. That's, that's a kind of relatively common thought. Um, but I think the way I spell it out is, is distinctive and, it, and, and kind of weird sounding, but I like it. I think it works. Um, so as you say, what I, what, what, the way I put it is I say, well, if I'm, if I'm telling you something, so earlier on I told you I was born in Stoke-on-Trent in England. Um, well, what am I doing now on my account? What I'm doing is I, I think I'm, um, I'm by, by kind of uh, presenting that as an informative statement, you know, I took a relatively serious tone of voice. This is not the kind of situation in which you're supposed to just make jokes about where you were born. I was kind of presenting that as a just kind of standard piece of information provision. What all of that was doing was I was kind of showing to you that I was kind of promising to speak truthfully right now. Right? So this is, this is the kind of context in which I'm offering you truthful information not a joke or, or, or something else like that. Um, and then right then, as I was doing that, I, I, I gave you the information. Like I told you I was born in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, and so the, the picture is that by presenting ourselves as telling or asserting, we're making this context in which we're promising to speak truthfully, that is to say to say the accurate thing, as it were. Um, and right then and there, all part and parcel of the same, the same action, the same little bit of speech, with, with simultaneously we're keeping that promise by speaking truthfully, as I did in that case, or we're breaking the promise if, in fact, we, 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 we say the wrong thing, we say something which is false or mistaken. Um, so this is a bit of a weird thing, I think. It, it does sound strange to think that you can make a promise and right then and there, not even just a moment later, but as part and parcel of the same um, action, you're, you're, you're there and then either keeping the promise or breaking it. Because more normally when we make a promise, we're promising to do something in the future, maybe at a specified time or just generally in the future. But again, I think I, I think this this um it, it, it nevertheless it makes sense to think of these simultaneous kind of promise making and keeping and breaking stuff. And the reason for that is that often when we're making promises for the future, the reason we do that is because other people find it useful to have an assurance about the future. Like we can't just look into the future and see what other people are going to do. We don't have a crystal ball. And so it's useful to have other people's assurance about what they're going to be doing. And likewise, often when people purport to be giving us information, we can't just kind of, in some sense, kind of look and see whether they're speaking truthfully or not. Again, we need that assurance that that's, that's what they're doing. Um, and so this kind of promising can be useful in that kind of context as well, even though, the promise is not about something from the future. It's about something that's going on right now. It's about what the person's saying right then and there. Nevertheless, it's still a context in which assurance is important and useful. Um, so the thought is then that um, we've got this idea of telling as involving a promise, make, kind of making a promise and at the same time keeping it or not keeping it. Um, and one thing I try and do with that then in the book is to go back and say, well, look, in the previous chapter, I said that you shouldn't make a promise unless you were competent to keep it. Well, here's a kind of promise, promising to speak truthfully. Well, don't do that unless you're competent to speak truthfully. That is, unless you know what it is that you're talking about, right? You've got the kind of information at your fingertips to, to be able to keep your promise to speak truthfully. If you don't, right, if you're not sure that you really know what you're talking about, perhaps it would be better to say something kind of a little bit hedging, say, well, I'm not sure, but maybe it's this, or have you thought about this idea, or I think it's pretty likely that that. Um, the various ways in which we can try and speak truthfully without there and then kind of promising to, to, to be doing that. So that's the thought, right? So I've got this kind of independent motivation for trying to understand telling other people stuff as involving a kind of commitment or promise. Um, and then uh, because that fits with the, the sort of grander project of, of bringing these different kinds of trust and trustworthiness together. But also I think it's kind of plausible because it helps us understand 
why there are certain sorts of norms on telling or assertion which are to do with sincerity and competence. And I think that's because there are the sincerity and competence norms on promising as well, and that all fits together nicely if telling involves a kind of promise. Yeah, fabulous. Um, uh, yeah, I was again, as I was reading the book, I was um, seeing the ways in which that account of uh, telling sort of hooks up with some familiar views about what the so-called you know norm of assertion is you know uh, uh, so great um, but let's let's move on I mean there's a lot to say uh, uh, more to say about your this, this this sort of two pronged account of commitment but let's move on to trustworthiness um, uh, because again you know it's it's a slim volume that you wrote but there's a, there's it's really jam packed with with a lot of uh, interesting ideas so um so uh your kind of trustworthiness sort of follows pretty neatly from the commitment based account of trust and distrust um ultimately the view is that um trustworthiness is a, you know is a matter of just avoiding unfulfilled commitment um avoiding you know the the ha- the having or maybe the taking on even of commitments that uh, wind up being unfulfilled um this makes um untrustworthiness um a matter both of um uh untrust you can be untrustworthy both in the sense that you deceptively uh you know uh, um uh, uh commit um uh, but also you can be untrustworthy when you overcommit, when you take on too much, or as you were just saying, um, in the case of competence and promising, sort of bite off more than you can chew. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that um, overcommitment sense of uh, trustworthiness and untrustworthiness? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so you're right. So, I mean, in a way, this kind of this wasn't what I thought I would end up with this project, but it, it, I, I, I liked it in the end. It's a kind of negative account of trustworthiness, right? So... So the book's title is How to Be Trustworthy, and the kind of short answer is that you should avoid being untrustworthy. Um, and the, spelling that out a little bit more, the way to avoid being untrustworthy is to avoid ending up in a situation where you've got commitments that you don't fulfill. Um, uh, and as you say, and as has come up a little bit earlier already, um, you know, I think we're used to thinking about untrustworthiness in terms of intentional deception or manipulation or dishonesty, that kind of thing. Um, con men, all of, all of those sorts of characters. But I wanted to also keep in mind the kind of untrustworthiness that can come from really great motives and intentions and kind of often a desire to help other people to do what they think they want. Um, and that's the kind of untrustworthiness that we fall into when we get overcommitted, either because we've got too many commitments or because we take on something that is just beyond us for whatever reason. We don't have the resources that, or the, the time or the skills that are necessary to, to follow through. Um, and uh, one reason I wanted to talk about that is I just think that's practically important. It's important in relationships. And again, it can be especially important. Um, maybe that's the kind of thing we can more easily forgive with our close friends or family members. But it's the kind of thing, someone who repeatedly does this kind of thing, this sort of overcommitment, can just be very difficult to deal with in a kind of a, a working relationship or a kind of neighborly relationship or kind of professional relationship of various different kinds. Um, so I wanted to theorize that. But also I think... Um, it's, it has lots of kind of interesting consequences, thinking about trustworthiness in this way. And one, one way of seeing this is to notice that, well, look, so to be trustworthy, I've got, there's a kind of range, of, if, that's, if that's my only goal, I've got a number of choices, right? So I can try and take on a whole bunch of commitments and make sure I live up to them. And if I manage, then good for me, I can be trustworthy in that way. But I can also be trustworthy by being kind of mean and self-centered, but by saying, well, I'm just going to take on as little as possible. Um, I'm only going to do the stuff that I'm really, really sure I can do, or maybe even just the stuff that I really enjoy and I'm sure I can do, um, maybe to make it even more self-centered. Um, and as long as I live up to those commitments, well, you know, you might criticize me on other grounds. You might say, you know, Catherine, you're being mean and antisocial and a bad colleague for other reasons, um, but I'm not being untrustworthy on my view. Um, and one reason I, I like that kind of consequence of my view is that it shows that, well, you know, being trustworthy isn't everything. Right? So sometimes the temptation, if we we can be trustworthy by whilst falling short on other important kind of values and virtues and so on. Um, and perhaps even more strongly that um, sometimes we face a kind of difficult choice between the thing which would secure our trustworthiness, the kind of safe or the cautious thing to do, um, that would be, we could be really certain if we do go down this route, we won't end up with broken promises. 
that can be intentional or it can be a difficult choice between doing that and doing something which should actually perhaps be more pro-social, more helpful, more generous, um, might help our relationships flourish more. And I find that kind of intriguing, right, the, the idea that trustworthiness can be something that doesn't always point in the same direction as other things that we value and other things that we ought to value. Great. Right. So, um, uh, so being trustworthy then, um, uh, requires us, uh, to avoid unfulfilled commitment. Um, but, uh, as you also say, uh, this is easier said than done. Um, not only because, you know, there are, um, these sort of obvious cases, uh, where, you know, our generosity gets the better of us <laughs> and we take on too much. Um, but, um, there are also kinds of uh, more circumstantial kinds of obstacles on your view, um, things that aren't really under our control that nonetheless can render us, um, uh, put us in a position where we have unfulfilled commitments. Can you tell us a little bit about those sort of, uh, I don't know if they're always bad luck cases, but some of them are cases of, you know, bad circumstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is something I come on towards the end of the book, and in in a way, I think it's the most important thing I'm trying to say, but it's also the kind of thing where it's hardest to really pin it down in a sort of rigorous fashion. But let let me talk in a slightly less rigorous way about it. Um, what I what I was trying to capture um, in the last couple of chapters of my book is this idea that. Um, whether or not we're trustworthy people, whether or not our behaviour is trustworthy, even when we're really trying hard to be trustworthy, is not always up to us. There's a lot of other things that can get in the way that we don't have control over. And in particular, I think often for people, for those amongst us who are living in difficult circumstances, we might say, so whether that's kind of lack of money or health problems or um, lack of kind of supportive relationships around us, or there's all sorts of different ways in which lives can be difficult often when lives are difficult in those ways, as well as the other kind of obvious downsides of those kind of problems, um, they can make it more difficult for us to be trustworthy. So that's kind of the the big picture here. But let me give you a few examples. So when we were talking earlier, I was talking as if, well, if I want to be trustworthy, I kind of look around, I think about which commitments to take on, I decide which ones to take, which ones to leave aside, and then, I mean, I better then live up to the ones I've taken on. And that's, that's, there's kind of a nice picture there of, it's kind of up to me, right? I'll decide what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. And then if I get it wrong, you can tell me off for being untrustworthy. But often, you know, it's not always up to us which commitments we undertake and which we don't. Um, and one reason for that might be that we don't always know how we're going to be understood by other people. So maybe with a very explicit promise, it can be up to me, at least at some level, whether I kind of say these words, you know, I promise to to meet you at such and such a place at such and such a time. But a lot of the ways in which we take commitments on are not in that way of kind of making an explicit promise. Often we end up with commitments through reciprocity, for example, right? So suppose you invite me to your house for dinner, um, well, if I say yes, does that mean I've got to invite you back next month? Or is it okay for me to just kind of come down and be polite and say thank you very much? And then that's the end of that. Um, I might not know. Like these, these kind of these sort of conventions and kind of cultural things can be quite local. Like, I don't know whether accepting your invitation then gives me a commitment to reciprocate or not. Um, often, if uh, there can be situations in which um, you don't kind of actively say no, like to up to an invitation or a request or something like that, does that mean that you've agreed to do it or does that mean you're still thinking about it or or, or what? Right? But again, these things can be quite local. And often we, you know, if anyone who's had the experience of moving to a different kind of cultural milieu or different kind of group of friends even, um, uh, often these things are different between different generations, I think, in interesting ways. You know, it, it can be quite hard to know what other people expect of us, what other people think we've offered to do and agreed to do. I th- again, go back to the workplace, you know, it's not uncommon to come away from a meeting, I think, or from an email exchange, slightly puzzled about whether you've agreed to do something or not. Right? Um, and then if you're in that situation, you don't know what commitments you've got. So often we don't, we don't know what commitments we've got. That makes it harder for us to control them. Even if we know exactly what's going on, it can be difficult for us often to control our commitments. You know, if you're very short of money um, and you might have to then you that puts you in a situation where you might have to take on an exploitative job um, or take on a kind of zero hours contract or put yourself in a situation where you have to undertake to do things and you didn't really have much choice right it wasn't up to you to think oh well can am I really competent to live up to this commitment 
it may be that, well, if I don't take this on, I'm not going to be able to put food on the table and so this is something I'm going to really have to go ahead with. So there are lots of situations in which our circumstances um, of all sorts can make it hard for us to, to control which new commitments we undertake, whether or not we understand what's going on or not. Another kind of set of difficulties I try and discuss is to say, well, look, even, even if we can overcome that problem, right, even if we um, do are able to exercise a, a fairly high level of control over whether we take on new commitments or not, if I'm trying to follow this um, competence rule and only take on the commitments that I'm competent to keep, well, then I better know what I'm competent to do, right? And as we talked a little bit about earlier, that's partly about knowing about my own skills and capabilities, but also it might depend on me knowing, um, you know, whether I'm going to have the spare time, uh, whether I've got the kind of material resources that are going to be necessary, whether other people are going to help me out. Um, and again, the more the more comfortable my life is, the easier it is to be assured that, yeah, okay, I'm going to be able to work this out somehow. So if I offer you a ride home at the end of the day, well, if I, if I can be sure that, well, it might look, if my, if my car doesn't start, then I've got enough money to get us a taxi, then I know I'm going to be able to live up to that commitment. Whereas if I know that if my car doesn't start, that's me walking home, then I, you know, that's, it's harder for me to be, to be sure that I'm offering you a competent promise if I offer to give you a ride home. So again, there can be lots of things that, in a way, it's kind of obvious that what we can do and what we can't do depends on our circumstances. But I think on over, kind of a, on top of that obvious thought is that our circumstances, the more um, fluctuating they are, the more unstable they are, the more they we live at the whims of other people and other people's demands, um, the harder it can be not first not just to be competent, but to to know what we're competent to do and what we're not competent to do. And when we're in that kind of epistemic difficulty, when we don't know what really the future holds for us, that makes these choices between taking on commitments and risking letting other people down, kind of risking our trustworthiness, and on the other hand, deciding not to take on the commitment, but then losing the, the many advantages that we can often gain from becoming committed. These choices can become more and more stark the more difficult our life circumstances are. Right, right. Um, so... Um... I think we've got now sort of a a, a, a nice um, you know sketch, uh, not fully detailed, but sufficiently detailed of this you know of of of, of your views, uh, at least as they are th- those that are articulated in the book. Um, so I guess the big question then is, apart from the uh, the, the 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 quick and dirty answer, uh, you know, uh, avoid unfulfilled commitments. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, what should what should those of us striving to be trustworthy or to make ourselves more trustworthy? What should we be doing? How 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 do we become more? How how, how can we be trustworthy? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great question. And in a way, um, I'm kind of disappointed. I got to the end of the book, and the answer is, well, it all depends. You know, um, it's off off on the way. But in a way, that's part of my point. Right, is that there isn't a general recipe because this goal of being trustworthy um, doesn't tell you which commitment. It's a kind of conditional thing. Like it says, well, if you've got a commitment, yeah, make sure that if you've got a commitment, you can live up to it. But that doesn't tell you which commitments to take on. It doesn't say take on as many commitments as possible um, or anything like that. So there's always going to be these kind of choice points for us. Um, and as I said, I think for some of us, these these choices are harder than others. But there are some there are some sort of general things that I think it's, it's useful to think about. Like if your goal is, is trustworthiness, here are some things you might want to think about. And one thing is being uh, kind of feeling a little bit more free than you might otherwise do to say no when people ask you to take things on, right? Um, in fact, this is the one, the book's only been out for a few months, but um, I think everyone I've spoken to so far who's read it has said something like this to me that, oh, well, you know, I read your book and now I find it easier to say no. Um, and I think <laughs> if that's true, that's great. So it's kind of a self-help book as well for people who have difficulty <laughs> saying no. And the reason that's important, or the reason that comes out of what I'm saying here is that um, I think it helps to see that sometimes when we, when we say no, other people want us to do stuff for them, right, or do stuff with them. Um, they want us to take things on, accept their invitations. And when we say no, it often feels like that's kind of mean or selfish or whatever. Um, but I think it's important to see that, well, no, actually, that might be the thing that you're doing for other people. Someone else is saying no, right? It's because that's part of what it takes to be a trustworthy person. And if you're a trustworthy person, that makes you valuable to other people. That makes you a good kind of member of society or a good colleague, a good friend, a good neighbor and so on. And so saying no isn't always about letting other people down. In fact, it can be that it can be a positive thing that you can do for other people. So saying no up front can often be the, the trustworthy thing to do. 
Um, and it doesn't have to be kind of selfish or unreasonable. Um, I think another thing that's useful to kind of keep in mind is that there are just always going to be trade-offs, right? So if you only think about trustworthiness, the, the, the thing to do is always going to be the more cautious thing, right? Only be, you know, be super careful about not promising or offering to do things, not offering information unless you're 100% sure of it, all of that kind of thing. But that's, you know, that's that, that's bad in other ways. If you think about it, perhaps some of us may know people who are a little bit like that, Um and taken too far, that can seem a bit sort of self-obsessed. Or this is the kind of person who's concerned to keep their own hands clean or to have the kind of plausible deniability or to not, you know, the, what the main thing they're worrying about is whether you're going to be able to come back later and complain to them or something like that. And, yeah, that's that's not great, right, if someone does that all the time. Often we want people around us who will just say yes and they'll just go on and do it. They won't give you the kind of... 2% chance that they won't be able to do it um, or kind of let you know about the things that might get in the way, but they'll try and work around it, that kind of thing. Um, so, and there's no, there's no solution there, right? Because t- people who just say yes all the time, that's a problem. People who always kind of hedge and are too cautious, that's a problem as well. So we're look- so one thing I think it's important to see here is that we're looking for one of these kind of in-between kind of virtues, right? This is the, getting it right um, is a matter of avoiding both kind of problematic extremes. Um, Something else I think is useful to think about in this context is that when, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about how it can be difficult sometimes to know when other people are going to think we've got commitments to them. Um, and so realising that that's important and that's a skill, I think part of being trustworthy is trying to take up other people's perspectives, trying to understand what other people might be expecting of us so that we can either kind of forestall that and say, look, I know you might think I'm going to do this, but I'm sorry, I really can't, or else try and, try and follow through. And again, I don't want to keep coming much my teenagers, but um, this is something teenagers, I think, can often be bad at. Like, even when they're kind of well-meaning, they're not always good at thinking about other people's perspectives and, and uh, what other people might think that they're going to be doing or, or not. Um, but that's an important part of being trustworthy, right, is anticipating what other people might expect of us so that we can either try and, yeah, kind of explain how that's not appropriate or, or, else, or else live up to what other people are expecting. And I think the other thing to say is to be a little bit um, generous to other people and when we're being judgmental about whether they themselves are being untrustworthy. And this goes back to what I was saying about how it's often people's material circumstances or their bodily or um, other kind of financial circumstances that make it hard for them to or make make it off, make it, living in difficult circumstances can often present people with very hard choices between trustworthiness and other things that can be really important in life. And so kind of recognising that other people might be going through those sort of difficult choices and cutting them a little bit of slack, I think, is, is also an important part of, of understanding what trustworthiness is. Right. And that's fabulous and a nice place um, uh, to end. Um, Catherine, you've been really generous with your time today, and I know that it's... Um, a slightly cruel question to ask somebody who's just finished and published a really fabulous book, um, what their next project is. Um, but, um, what's on the horizon for you? Uh, yeah, well, it's great. It's great to talk about what's coming next. Um, a couple, yeah, a couple of things. I think one thing I would just very briefly, one thing I would like to think more about is, um, what it is not for a person to be trustworthy, but for something like an institution or an organization. I think these are really important public questions at the moment. And, um, I'd like, to have the opportunity to take some of the things I think about in my, in my book for personal trustworthiness and extend it to that. But the other thing I'm, I'm hoping to work more on is um, uh, a, a kind of philosophical critique of the concept of imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is a term that we is often used to describe people who are kind of successful by external measures. So these people often have professional success or maybe they've won prizes for their work um, or they've been promoted, they have a lot of responsibility or student level, they get great grades. So from the outside, it looks like they're doing really well in life. But on the inside, they are kind of insecure. They think this is all a kind of mistake um, or and this is going to be uncovered. Soon people are going to realise they don't really know what they're doing. So people feel like an imposter in their own life in some sense. And one reason I think this is philosophically interesting is that partly raises lots of epistemic questions right, about what is it, how do we judge what we're good at, what we're not good at. Um, but I'm also kind of intrigued by the way, the kind of sort of, the kind of cultural status of this concept of imposter syndrome. So it's not a 
it's not a time diagnosable psychiatric disorder. It's not in the DSM, um, so-called Bible of, 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 of mental disorders. Um, psychologists do sometimes study it. Um, there's kind of social psychology work on this where you, you ask people how they feel about their own success and achievement. Um, but that's kind of all out of proportion with the massive amounts of attention that you'll find if you Google imposter syndrome or you look in the self-help section of the, of the bookstore. Um, and I'm, there's lots of things I think I'm in, that are interesting here. But one, just to pick out one question, um, I'm kind of interested in the way in which calling it imposter syndrome makes it sound like it's a, a kind of psychological deficiency of the person who has it, right? There's kind of something wrong with this person's thinking. As it's often put, the person is unable to internalize their success. And that suggests that the cure for this kind of quasi-illness is to help the person think differently or for the person themselves to help themselves think differently. But I think that's probably a mistake in a lot of cases, right? I think if really imposter syndrome is as widespread as it's supposed to be, if there's really so many people who are successful and yet feel insecure or uncertain about that, it's unlikely that all of these people are just kind of suffering from some kind of delusion. What's much more likely is that there's something problematic about the ways in which we talk about achievement and success and talent and skill and so on in society more generally. Um, it's it's more like a kind of social environmental problem that makes it difficult for people to feel confident in their success. And I'd, I'd like to think more about that. If I can put in a little plug, I have a paper. I have one paper I've written about this so far, which is called What is Imposter Syndrome? Um, and that's imposter spelt with an O rather than an E. Um, and that's in the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. And that's actually open access at the moment until the end of March 2019. Um, and I'll plug someone else's paper as well, Sarah Paul. Um, also wrote a fabulous paper in the same issue of the journal and her Sarah's paper is called What Should Imposter Syndrome Be? So if anyone's interested in these issues, I'd, uh, I'd recommend you to take a look at those papers. Well, that's fantastic. I, I'm going to go look at them myself uh, in, in, uh, a little bit uh, later today. Um, well, that all sounds fabulous. Um, and uh, it's been a real delight uh, uh, to talk to you today, Catherine, uh, about your book. And I just want to thank you once more for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning in um, and for joining us uh, for the, our discussion um, of Catherine Hawley's fantastic new book, which is titled How to Be Trustworthy. Uh, it's now just published uh, with Oxford University Press. Uh, thanks for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.